I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. And I'm your other co-host, Dean Detloff. Folks, it's not Christmas yet. Don't get too excited. Uh, uh, Santa Claus, he's still at the North Pole. Don Feliciano, he's still in Cuba. Santa's still uh, <laughs> peering into his horrible scrying orb, trying to see who's being good and bad, while Don Feliciano is uh, stealing from the rich to give to the poor. Man, Don Feliciano rules so much. Uh, I was just, I, I wanted to avoid getting excited about Christmas before it's time, but now I've said Don Feliciano, and I'm just really excited about the anti-capitalist uh, Christmas man. We should back up. Okay, if you've never heard of Don Feliciano, maybe you're a new <laughs> listener to this podcast. And, coming uh, in hot. Yeah. yeah, coming in hot for sure. Um, Don Feliciano, uh, this is going to be a great way to eat up some time in this episode, by the way, so I'm going to take it. Don Feliciano is uh, a very interesting part of Cuba's history with Christmas. We did an episode on Cuban Christmas a long time ago. Uh, there's a really kind of funny story about Fidel Castro banning Santa Claus as like a symbol of imperialism in Cuba. And instead, the the Cuban government invented this character, Don Feliciano, who's like a Cuban peasant who brings you a present instead of Santa Claus. And uh, it is the coolest thing ever. So Don Feliciano, I don't have kids, but one day I will. And Don Feliciano will be the one to bring them exactly one present. <laughs> yeah, pretty good. He uh, he looks kind of like Santa Claus, but he has like a Hawaiian shirt on, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, we need the Don Feliciano sort of um, localized to our own times, you know, like maybe he has a skateboard and a wallet chain or something. Uh, That's yeah, right. A little bit different. Oh, Donald Feliciano, the Zoomer Santa. Yeah. <laughs> Donnie He's Feliciani. On... Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Donnie Feliciani sounds like my uh, my new favorite SNL cast member. I'm super psyched <laughs> whenever he gets to be on the show. Yeah, yeah, crazy they got him off of YouTube. Um, okay, so uh, that's Don Feliciano. He's great. Um, Matt, it's Advent. It's the Advent time. What are you guys doing in your household right now to prepare for the coming of our good Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, well, right now we are nearly, we've nearly burned it down one at least one time. Um, so let me tell you this. This is great. Another story to eat up time from our podcast to, to uh, stave off uh, talking about something serious. So uh, let's see. Like all good Episcopal churches, uh, our church has a children's service every now and again. And the, and the most recent one, uh, they handed out these like kits to make your own Advent candles at home. 
and we did and we made the candles and it was a pretty fun craft and my son was really into it honestly i was too it was great but <laughs> we did light one of the candles and we must have like i don't know we've had we had some kind of candle malfunction and then like a big chunk of the candle did fall off on the table and it was still on fire <laughs> pretty it, it uh it melted a bit of the plastic christmas wreath that was around the edges it's you know it's fine it's still gonna be great yeah uh, but we better we have our first advent candle the advent candle of hope uh it is uh significantly smaller than the rest now and it's good we're gonna, it's gonna be a christmas miracle if it makes it all the way up into uh the 25th but we'll that see. feels appropriate though that's the hope you know uh it's very important you hope that it makes it all the way through that's um right. man this is a uh, not an advent story but what you were just saying reminded me of it so you know midnight mass we've all been there maybe you haven't um and midnight mass uh it's really your, late uh, your priest is a vampire yeah, you're priests of vampire, exactly. Um, but in addition, uh, everybody there at midnight mass is sleepy, tired, and you're ready for whatever it might be, Christmas or Easter. And uh, they distribute candles, and you light them, and, and they turn off all the lights in church. And so, you you know, it's this beautiful little moment, and everything is candlelit, so on and so forth. So as you might guess, though, like the the candles are lit for kind of a while and everybody is super sleepy. And I think my whole life I thought I can't believe that like none of these ever catch fire. And I did go to church with an older friend of mine who I won't name on this podcast. He doesn't listen to it, but whatever. <laughs> for his own Just in case. Sake. Just in case. Uh, anyway, we, we went with uh, this friend and uh, he did fall asleep holding the candle and the little guard did finally catch fire. And I felt like this was the moment I'd been waiting for my whole life, like seeing it happen. And I'm not only like being aware it was in church, but it was like my group. I felt so proud. It was really exciting. So we'll see. We'll see if that happens at Midnight Mass this year. I'm hoping. The most exciting time anyone's ever had at church, for sure. <laughs> All right. Um, let's see. We are talking about Advent. You know, Matt and I were like, what are we going to do today and next week and the week after and the week after that, like we always do. And sometimes it's a struggle to come up with content. And all of a sudden it dawned on us, wait a second, uh, Advent has four themes, one every week. Why don't we just do that? And guess what? That is exactly what we're doing. It is hope this week. We're going to talk about hope. Uh, we're going to talk about it using the tools we usually use. I don't know. Hope is a weird conversation specifically in both Christianity and on the left. So maybe that'll be fun. We'll find out. Uh, Matt, before we get there, do you want to say anything about our Patreon at the top of the episode here? Absolutely, I do. Um, if you like our podcast, and you probably do, you could support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Uh, you can support us at any number of levels, and there are a few um, rewards that you get for doing so. Like um, you get a special behind the scenes uh, podcast, which I'm just remembering I never did. I never did that <laughs> this week. Well, all right. You will get it eventually. Um, and uh, you can get a sticker and an invite to our Discord channel, which is which is always popping off doing different things so uh you could be a part of the magnificast community if you just uh want to subscribe to our patreon so so uh that's what you can do i don't know give it to somebody as a gift that'd be a weird gift but you could <laughs> yeah i wouldn't want to get it i have to say um <laughs> let's see though yeah that's great uh you can support us there if you want to or you can just keep listening to this episode and don't feel guilty about it I, for free I wouldn't. yeah yeah i would prefer that you don't um 
This is an episode about hope, as I was just saying, and uh, I mentioned that hope is a complicated topic for Christians and the left. Matt, I'm going to make you answer this question. (laughs) Why is that the case? Why is hope a complicated issue for both of these uh, discursive families? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's probably a lot of reasons that hope uh, ends up being problematic. I mean, there's a certain idealism to hope that probably makes it problematic for Marxism. Um, and maybe I think like if we consider it pretty seriously, like we are going to in this episode, I think that idealism is a little bit um, misattributed because I don't think hope is actually all that idealistic. Um, but, uh, you know, it has that connotation, perhaps. And for Christianity, hope is uh, a big deal, though, right? Because you're always hoping for, um, you know, the eschaton. You're hoping for Jesus to come back and suck you up right off this bad earth and put you in heaven or something. <laughs> Um, you know, which leads to all kinds of very complicated um, ideas and theologies and, and anxieties. <laughs> um, the other the, the the other thing, too, I think about hope is that it is one of those words I think has lost most of its meaning because of like consumer culture. Hmm. This is this feels like such a, a 1990s thing to like really care about or like a very Charlie Brown Christmas thing to care about. It's just. <laughs> Hope is, has become too commercial. But I mean, I don't know, myself, whenever I think of the word hope or I hear it in a religious context or something, I think of one of those like very chuggy wall signs that say mm-hmm. like hope and live, laugh, love or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like one of those words that uh, I guess sounds kind of nice and probably has something to it. But, uh, you know, it's been so thoroughly appropriated into consumer culture. It makes me want to barf whenever I think about it too much. Um, yeah. And I think that sucks, though, because um, I think if you do think about it, you know, as a as a political idea rather than like a chuggy wall sign <laughs> or as a religious idea rather than a chuggy wall sign, I think there's something to hope that is actually really compelling um, that is uh, wor- worth considering. Uh, mm-hmm. Dean, what do you think? I think you're right. Everything you're saying is right. <laughs> so you can take comfort in that. Um, but no, I agree. You know, uh, hope is a really weird thing. I remember um, one time, I, I don't remember what we were talking about, but I was talking with my wife, Emily, about something. And I think it was like related to some potential political possibility of the US or whatever. And she was like, look, I know that you don't like have much hope in anything, but you have to like think about this. It might be cool and like allow yourself to feel cool. You know, so that's a brand that I cultivated over time <laughs> for the worse, I think, <laughs> uh, as a reputation. I don't recommend becoming that person. Um, but uh, nevertheless, there I was. Um, and I think that the reason that I, I sort of uh, gained that reputation is hope can be the kind of thing that not only is taken over by consumerism, but it's it can uh, feel like it's cheap or easy or it's a way out of dealing with, you know, the bitter reality around you or like right. if you get lost in hopes, you end up disappointed. Right. It's a recipe for cynicism and disappointment and naivete and all that stuff is true. Like it's true. Hope will potentially mess you up and bum you out for sure. But at the same time, it's kind of like a risk that is indispensable in some ways. And this is maybe a this is kind of a grad school hot take. You know, there's a lot of conversation around hope in certain very cool literature right now. Uh, lots of interesting stuff happening in like political left stuff and black study stuff and Afro pessimism and everything around hope. And it's all very good. Uh, and we're not going to get into the weeds with that, I guess. But I kind of am of the the hot take, the opinion that 
Um, you're kind of like stuck with hope whether you like it or not. Although sometimes we name it different things or we prefer to use different terms for it. And I guess uh, for me, it just comes down to like, well, let's figure out the kind of hope that is worth talking about and we'll see what we can do with that. <laughs> I think that's the, the way that I came around to hopefully not being as crabby and uh, annoying to be around, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can uh, resonate with that a lot. Um, at a certain point, I think like uh, if you are reading, you know, radical texts in grad school or, or, or whatever, and you're not doing like organizing work and you're not really, really seeing that, like you actually do have agency in the world. I think that like cynicism becomes extremely. Um, I don't know. It feels good in some ways. It presses some good buttons for you, like uh, as an affect. Yeah. But. But yeah, I think that, uh, man, it's a good idea to push that feeling away. Being a cynic, being a big a big downer, it's not great. It's not great for you, and it's probably not a great idea to think about the world if you actually want to change it. Yeah. Um, well, here, here's an idea. This is, um, this is an idea about hope that I think I have thought about quite a bit. Um, so uh, my fr friend of the show, John Birmingham, I don't know if he listens still, who knows. But anyways, he uh, often used to teach a... Uh, a college class where he made uh, undergrads read uh, Cornell West's book, Hope on a Tightrope. And I had never read the book. And one time he asked me if I could like sub in for him because he was going to go for a go to a conference. And uh, I had to read the book very quickly and kind of figure out what it was about <laughs> so he could talk to some undergrads about it. Anyways, uh, it's not my favorite Cornell West book, um, but it's certainly a Cornell West book. And there's a great quote in there that I think he's kind of famous for at this point. So I'll just read it and we can kind of uh, go from there. Mm -hmm. Cornel West, everyone's favorite guy. He's what a great person, honestly. <laughs> Cornel West says, I'm in no way optimistic, but I remain a prisoner of hope. Hope is no guarantee. Real hope is grounded in a particular messy struggle, and it can be betrayed by naive projections of a better future that ignore the necessity of doing the real work. So what we're talking about is hope on a tightrope. I mean, the idea here is pretty uh, interesting. You know, you have you have something like optimism, you know, the, the feeling that like, I don't know, uh, you're a, a glass half full kind of person. Things are going to turn out OK, like whatever. The the universe is going to kind of sway things in your favor or whatever. Uh, God's God's looking out of your shoulder. I don't know. One of those ways. But um, in in all of those, um, you know, in, in optimism, the future is guaranteed. Things will just work out. Um, you know, there's nothing you have to really do. Things will be fine. But uh, hope is a different sort of comportment towards the world, a different type of like caring yourself and interacting with uh, how you see yourself in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, it's um, you know that like uh, if you if you hope if you hope for something, you have to be like willing to imagine that like that hope is possible. But you also know that like you have to like do it right mm -hmm. like you're hoping this thing works out or you're hoping that like your efforts are enough is like a, a already a claim that uh, bases a certain amount of agency in you and in um, the action of you know other people around you so um, you know it's uh, you can you can imagine a better future right you can you can think that another world is possible but that still doesn't mean that you have hope uh, because hope necessitates that you're actually doing something that you're struggling towards um, you know, the better world in a, in a real concrete way. Yeah, I think that is important to think about, I guess, where we locate hope or where where does hope get nourished or something? You know, I think like when I think back to uh, 
being like an evangelical teen, uh, if somebody asked me if I had hope, I would I would have said yes. And if they said sort of in what or from where, I would have said, I don't know, like the, you know, my relationship with Christ in this kind of vague sense, you know, some idea about like the afterlife and so on and so forth. But it would all have been uh, totally imaginary, right? Like hope would right. be the kind of thing that is rooted in some kind of future world that my mind could project. Um, but uh now, I would still say that I have a lot of hope, but it comes out of, um, I guess, as Cornell West puts it, that messy struggle. But we could say uh, solidarity or, um, you know, the hope that you not only need to kind of sustain people's movements, but also the hope that I think sort of just emerges out of those movements, too. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of defeats in people's movements, and that is hard to take. But like you do get a win every once in a while. And sometimes you even get like a really big win. And I think it's also okay and important to sort of allow those victories to create a feeling of hope because, you know, you want to keep the ball rolling. And also where people do get power and have kind of created alternatives in the world, um, they do that by continuing to to build on those victories, right? Not uh, constantly poo-pooing them or like, being too afraid to get into it by, but by instead like risking the hope that you have to have to kind of step out and like, you know, give something a try, even if you're going to mess it up as you, whatever, build the new movement towards socialism or whatever it might be. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good way of putting it. Well, let me, let me drive this a little bit more uh, with, with some other stuff from Cornell West. Um, Again, I, I don't know. I, I feel I don't feel we don't talk a lot about Cornell West on the podcast, uh, but maybe we should, at least when it comes to hope. He's like the guy that talks about it the most, I think. Um, OK, so Cornell West in this uh, it's he he was interviewed on this Vox uh, podcast. And I listened to a bit of it just to see like what he was saying about hope. And it was pretty interesting. So the the podcast host was trying to get him to differentiate optimism from hope. Another uh, something that seems like a, a sticking point for me in my brain, at least, because uh, they seem uh, in the way that people use them, they seem sort of synonymous, but I think in practice they're not. So Cornell West kind of goes on to say this thing that like, you know, he can't be an optimist because like he sees the world around him and it's like very bad, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, you, how could you be an optimist in a world where like, I don't know, white supremacy is still like the, um, <laughs> like the mode of operation for the entire, like, I don't know, nor- North American governments. How could you be uh, optimistic in like the face of, you know, so many awful things that are happening, right? Genocide and whatnot. It's, it's, it's all bad. Um, but, uh, he says that hope is something that's not, not like that. Hope is different. It's participatory. He says, um, so Cornel West says this, you're already in the mess. You're in the funk. What are you going to do there? Hope is a verb as much as a virtue. Hope is as much a consequence of your action as it is a source of your action. As Roberto Unger always said, uh, so that hope is something that you find in your immersion. And you decide that you're going to fight till the end, no matter what. Um, I I think that's a really interesting formulation of this idea, though. Maybe one that even muddies the water a bit more. It's uh, it is a as much a consequence of your action as it is a source of your action. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a, a complicated way to put it, and and maybe <laughs> it makes it harder even to parse out. But I think that's a really interesting way to put it, though, because it's not just um, it's not just like. Uh, an outcome that you're suspecting might follow, uh, but it's the thing that's making you seek the outcome in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, it's the motivation, but it's also the thing that you want to do. It's, um, you know, it's like, uh, it, it's the, 
trying to think of like a, a good analog or maybe like a, another word that you could like attach to it. But it's like hope is the feeling of empowerment that you get, like when you are actually doing like that work or something. You know, mm-hmm. it's like when you're when you're feeling like you could actually win, like there, hope is there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you have to be able to sort of risk that disappointment, potential disappointment in order to get anywhere anyway. Um, it's on a tightrope, I've heard. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, you know, if you don't hope, you're also sort of uh, risking that you won't get anywhere either, which is, uh, you know, you're you're risking it either way, I guess. But uh, people on the left, I think, have this um, strange habit of uh, it. Like if it's bad news, it must be true. That's kind of a <laughs> like uh, an equation that I think comes up in the left a lot. Um, but it's important also to be like, well, sometimes good news is true and it's good that it is true. Like you want it to be true. And, mm-hmm. you know, and in some parts of the world, it's true. Right. Like uh, whatever. In in Bolivia, the uh, movement towards socialism got removed by a coup and a bunch of people, I'm sure, hoped that it would come back. And guess what it did? Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's something about that that matters in a material sense. It came back and it wasn't just because like that was the grand you know, mechanics of the universe for it to come back. It came back because like a lot of people went on strike. Right. Right. And a lot of people fought for it. Right. Like they, it's so like, you know, the, the hope is there in, uh, in what they wanted, but it was it, that thing that they wanted, the thing that they're striving towards, you know, the, um, kind of winning their country back. That's what, that's what moved them to action. That's like what empowered them. Yeah. I think you could probably take a term like hope and, I don't know, parse it out into all kinds of different species or subcategories or something. Sure. And I'm sure people have done it and do it or whatever. Um, but uh, I really like actually a particular theologian and the way that he talks about it. Um, Johann Baptiste Metz, who I think I maybe even talked about like two episodes ago or something. I guess he's just in my brain. But uh, he is a really interesting German theologian, Catholic theologian. He... Um, he was like interested in liberation theology as a person in Europe and uh, wrote a bunch of interesting stuff. Some of it I like and some of it I don't. But um, in particular, he was really invested in trying to do theology, first of all, kind of in the wake of the Holocaust in his German context. And that's very interesting, but also in dialogue with uh, critical theory and what's called the Frankfurt School, which is kind of a collection of uh, Marxist thinkers who had different things to say about culture and religion. And they were kind of like, I don't know, how would you describe them in a word? They were like weird Marxists, I guess. Uh, well, they depressed were uh, Marxists for the most he, part. That's right. Depressed Marxists. They were Marxists uh, after the revolution wasn't coming imminently. Yeah, imminently. that's right. After the revolution not only wasn't coming, but got completely trounced by fascism. That's right. Um, so, uh, Anyway, Johann Baptist Smith, he's a Catholic theologian reading those people. Uh, so he wrote a really interesting book called Faith in History and Society, which is just kind of his, I don't know, theological vision. And in it, there is this cool passage that I always think about when I think about hope. Um, and I'm going to read it. He says this, in my definition of the faith of Christians, I spoke of hope in solidarity. Solidarity here should be understood in a strictly universal sense as solidarity that has to justify itself not only with regard to the living and future generations, but also with regard to the dead. In this hope, then, the Christian does not primarily hope for themselves. They also have to hope for others, and in this hope, for themselves. The hope of Christians in a God of the living and dead, and in the power that God, uh, in, in the power of that God to raise people from the dead, is a hope in a revolution for all human beings, including those who suffer and have suffered unjustly those who have long been forgotten, and even the dead. 
This hope does not in any sense paralyze historical initiatives or the struggle for the state of all humans as subjects. On the contrary, it acts as a guarantee for the criteria which humans use again and again to oppose in the presence of the accumulated sufferings of those who've been unjustly treated, the prevailing unjust structures and relationships. So typical theology language, but I think the the short of it here that I really like is he's really trying to pull together on the one hand, this kind of eschatological vision that Christians have, right? The vision for the afterlife, this vision for a world where everybody's resurrected, where the world is redeemed and so on. But also like saying you don't sort of have that on the one hand and the material struggle on the other, but rather it's that desire for the redemption of not just future human beings, but even the past of all sufferings to have been righted. Uh, that sort of pushes you into the material struggle as well. And, you know, I think of that as kind of a, I mentioned um, these kind of species of hope or something that you could kind of find that idea of a hope being in solidarity, that hope kind of springs out of solidarity. I think that is like the way of talking about hope that sort of makes the most sense to me, whatever we want to say about like hope in general or something. It's like, I have to tie it to that theme <laughs> of like solidarity in order to make sense of it at all, whether it's like theology or politics. Yeah. That's a, such a compelling idea though, that um, I don't know. Um, sometimes we talk about on this show, that the left, you know, has so much to offer Christianity, but um, that convinces me, I guess, that sometimes the the opposite is true, that sometimes Christianity has something to give to other people, um, especially on the left, that that uh, uh, you could have such a grand and radical vision about hope and justice that, like, even history would be set right. It's a pretty compelling idea. Um, sucks that more Christians don't believe that. I guess. <laughs> yeah. It's also one that, so Metz gets that also from critical theory, which is really interesting. So yeah. we mentioned like the critical theorists are known as being the depressing Marxists. Uh, you know, they're writing after the destruction of Marxism or the, the failure of it and so on. But uh, at least as far as they were concerned. Um, but one thing that is really fascinating is like you, you do the, the reputation is well learned. Like if you go read someone like Theodore Adorno, you're going to read a lot of really depressing comments about culture and jazz music. Uh, but uh, you'll also uh, read some really interesting sort of ways that Adorno tries to find hope too. And one of those is by casting his own sort of quasi mystical vision of the future. So like Adorno, uh, he is Jewish, but not practicing by any stretch. Uh, he's interested in Christianity, but definitely not a Christian. Uh, but he borrows from these traditions in order to sort of think like in his imagination as a Marxist person, he wants to imagine the world from the standpoint of redemption, as he puts it in a few places. And it's like that imaginative act allows him to sort of think about, you know, politics or what would it mean to kind of get from point A to point B from here to that sort of standpoint of redemption. And I think that you know, uh, the way that gets filtered out in Metz is so cool because Metz is like, yeah, that is what Christians say, right? That is what we actually believe. We want to think from that standpoint and we believe that we're going to get there too. But I think it's compelling that even for Adorno who doesn't believe in that um, in a kind of metaphysical way, nevertheless, he does believe it in this kind of political imaginative way. And that is a very cool uh, gift of, I don't know, religious traditions to uh, leftist traditions. Yeah, totally. I mean, what's so interesting about uh, about Metz's, I guess, interpretation of that or I don't know, I don't know if interpretation is the right word, but um, but, you know, that 
that particular view of redemption like pushes you into consider the material whereas like so many other christians just like completely get lost with with redemption you know like it's like completely mm-hmm. eschatological it's like in the future i mean maybe maybe more like adorno than <laughs> than anything else right <laughs> it's just off in the future it'll happen i don't know but like it's not anything that we really have anything to do with um which like on the one hand i guess like that is there's an orthodox christian belief in there too somewhere that's kind of like throwing a wrench into things that like um well, it's it's God's salvific work that's like kind of the the thing that's doing it all. So that might dissuade you from getting entrenched in the material. But um, I don't know. The way Metz puts it, I think, is far more interesting. And uh, man, a good thing for Christians to listen to, I guess. Yeah, I mean, what's so fascinating about Metz is that in this particular case, it's he's not really he's not uh, not only is he not challenging a basic orthodox understanding of whatever, what Christians believe about the afterlife. But he's saying, if you believe that, it should make political avenues available to you, right? It should should compel you to struggle now because you know what's happening in the future. And that is such a cool thing. I think for me especially, like, you know, when you go through graduate school, sometimes you're like, "Ah, I don't know. Like, yeah, I guess I'm a Christian person, but like, what do I think about it? You know, some days maybe I feel a little more excited about all the all the ornaments, <laughs> the kind of metaphysical stuff hanging around. And then other days, it's maybe a little flatter or a little more muted. And uh, I really appreciate people like Metz or um, people like Herbert McCabe, right? These other uh, theologians who are kind of like, well, you don't have to like bracket off all the weird stuff. In fact, the weird stuff can really kind of energize and compel the the concrete stuff. And uh, I like that. I feel like I need that for my own spiritual sanity <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, I get it. Well, especially when it's form like when it's formulated in a way that is like generally good. Yeah. yeah. Not uh and not just like, I don't know. Um you know, because you can do you can do the same thing, but it's just like, well, here's a bunch of like metaphysical stuff that really is actually meaningless in the end. Right. But right. in this way it actually makes a difference. Well, um let me let me bring this into the conversation too. I think it's actually um a similar kind of note um dra- dragging out theologians here in a in a pokemon battle of them um <laughs> so leonardo boff we talked about him i don't know last week week before man who knows but anyways he's got a blog we love it it's great he's um he's got the highest seo rate for liberation <laughs> theology um and it's fantastic he's killing it anyways he has a, a quote about hope that i thought was pretty interesting it's from a pretty old post where he's kind of talking about a uh, really particular uh, political struggle. So I, we don't need to get into the weeds with like what actually is happening here, but there is a cool quote that we can kind of pull out and I think we can get some of these similar ideas from, but um, maybe some related ideas as well. So the blog post is called the political strength of hope. And uh, this is a, a pretty small part of it. He says from St. Augustine, perhaps the greatest Christian genius. Okay. Come on. <laughs> Probably name not. one name one genius who's more geniuser than augustine <laughs> jesus um oh, okay. not a <laughs> good point <laughs> <laughs> all right anyways augustine the greatest christian genius uh, a great inventor of phrases comes to this sentence hope has two beloved daughters indignation and courage indignation teaches us to reject things as they are and courage inspires us to change them this is uh, um, this is a, a bit pithy. It's it's definitely no it's no uh, Johann Baptist Metz for sure. But uh, I like that um, I like that the the word indignation is here. I think that's so that's good. Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, uh, I think that there is, <laughs> this is, I don't know, maybe a weird soapbox to stand on at this part of our podcast, but like, um, there is such a, a huge, um, like vacuum in the common vernacular of like actually describing the ways that people feel or something mm-hmm. like, I don't know if something is, if something is tough, it makes you sad. If something is not going your way, it's, it makes you angry. I don't know. We've lost a lot of uh, vocab to describe the uh, inner feelings that we might all have. I really appreciate the word indignation mm. um, because it is describing an affect that is really powerful that I think we that we can learn to put a finger on maybe more than we do, right? Like indignation isn't like hate and it's not quite, I mean, it's anger, but it's also anger about something in particular, right? It's like not blind rage or just flying off the the cuff. Indignation is like you see an injustice and you are like pissed about it. Mm-hmm. But I think it's so cool that he ties that to hope. Um, those two ideas, I mean, you wouldn't the the sign the hope signs hang on your in, in the in the bathroom wall of your mom's house uh you wouldn't usually tie that to indignation but like that uh but but that is like you know um a, a related affect is such a cool observation um that you would uh you know that you actually do see injustice in the world and that you think that you could change it and like that hope has to be a part of that equation because if it wasn't you wouldn't think you could change it at all right and then courage follows cuz like that's your I guess, sort of ability or will to actually move to do something. Um, so maybe not as profound as a point as Metz makes about, uh, you know, the redemption of all things and people in history, but uh, a, a good uh, a good observation for people, I don't know, doing the work, I suppose. Yeah, we need a new Chugi um, Walmart art. Uh, it says uh, get pissed. Yeah, Let's get pissed. mad. Or it's just like a like a family tree and hope that's there and then indignation and courage are down there. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I agree. And I, I take that point, too, about like trying to expand our emotional vocabulary or the range of terms that we have to express ourselves and and see what's going on with all that to sort of tie indignation uh, to hope is a really empowering thing. I mean, courage is probably, I think, obvious with hope, right? Like it's a, a natural affinity or natural term. To sort mm-hmm. of put together, like, yeah, I, I have hope in something, so I act with courage, even if I, you know, if it's scary or whatever. But, uh, yeah, that piece of indignation to be like, um, hope can also sort of naturally inspire these feelings of uh, not being uh, okay with what things, uh, how things are as they are is uh, is huge. Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, maybe we could talk more about that eschatological piece though. Let's get real theological on this show. Something we never ever do and often avoid at all costs. Um, nevertheless, we're not doing it this time. I'm going to, it's Advent time. (laughs) Advent time is theology time, I guess. Uh, I often think about Advent. I had to write. So G's magazine, G's magazine puts out a really amazing Advent book every year, or at least they have the last few years. And I, I, uh, wrote for the, the one last year. And I remember like Libby asked me to do it and I was like, I guess I will, but I don't know what I'll say. I don't really write in like devotional books. That's not really my particular genre (laughs) of writing. And I was thinking about it and thinking about it. And at that particular time, I I don't remember what was going on, but I just remember being like really uh, kind of, I don't know, ragey about like politics in that moment. And uh, I was thinking about Advent and it struck me, so Advent is a waiting time, and we always are, you know, waiting for the nativity. 
But Advent is also in the Christian tradition, a waiting for the second coming for the, the final judgment. And I was like, you know what? That is something that I could really look forward to. <laughs> like, not not because I think I'm going to come away unscathed or anything, but because it's that sort of uh, desperation for everything to just finally get sorted out. You know, like I had that sort of feeling of like, I'm so upset that the world is so messed up and like, you know, like real people are actually dying and suffering every single day. People I know, people I don't know. And, like, I just want sort of that moment where, you know, the judge comes down and the sheep are over here, the goats are over here, and whatever else happens after that is, like, out of my hands. You know, it's, like, up to God. And uh, I think it's important, too, to kind of think of these Advent themes um, both in that incarnational sense of, like, yeah, yeah, you know, we're hoping for the coming of Christ and living into that Christmas story, but also hoping for the second coming and, and being alive to that messianic possibility. And I think that sort of brings us into that stuff that Metz is talking about too, right? That we can sort of uh, tie our hope to that future eschatological moment when, you know, God will make an account for all the sufferings of all the people who have ever died and ever suffered in the world. And like, that is definitely something I'm, I think my advent is is moving more in that direction these days. Yeah. You know, um, man, Tad DeLay had a tweet earlier today. Uh, that, that the tweet was just uh, wouldn't it be great if hell existed <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> speaking of identifying affect uh, there's a there's a lot going on there for sure but you know the general feeling is like wouldn't it be great if there if uh, you know if if that type of divine justice was, like, was real was, was real or something <laughs> and and uh, you know sometimes I feel that way for sure um, wouldn't it be great if uh, really bad people got punished and you knew about it or something, <laughs> but uh, a lot going on there for sure. Anyways, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the the eschatological moment, though, of hope is such an interesting thing um, because, OK, I I guess in in my own life, I don't know. I, I don't know much about theology. Uh, I'm kind of a dumbass if you didn't know, but <laughs> uh, something I don't like about theology is and, and especially when it comes to like eschatological stuff is like, you know, it pushes everything off so far that it's like sort of meaningless or it's meaningful only in like a really grand cosmological way. But I think there's also something too about like, um, okay, the second coming, but, but like, what if it happened in like more mundane ways or something? Hmm. Uh, when, when I was an undergrad, I was reading a lot about like realized eschatology, which is like a, a particular theological movement that kind of tries to recognize, um, you know, like the, instead of like, uh, you know, the book of revelations being about like, um, the end times and the rapture and like a real dragon that comes to eat your butt or whatever. Like what if that's like sort of a, a metaphor for things that are like already happening or whatever, like with like the Roman empire or something. Mm -hmm. But uh, I remember reading like kind of in that realm of, in that like that same like orbit of literature, some really interesting thoughts about like the second coming and like what that might mean. Um, like what if it means uh, eschatologically that like, uh, you know, the second coming is just like when Jesus comes kind of through other people or something like, I don't know the, like in the poor or in like people who are oppressed or whatever, like what if that's the second coming? Um, and I don't know, to me, that makes me feel a bit better about eschatology. <laughs> like there's something actually to it. Like there's like some, like there's like some skin in the game. Um, and not just like a big, a big idea that you have to wait for her or for it to happen at the, at the very end of time or something. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, you know, I I don't blame anybody for not being able to like chew the big piece of gum that is like <laughs> orthodox metaphysical claims in Christian history. <laughs> like it's a lot to chew on and uh, you do not want to swallow it for sure. It'll stay in your stomach for seven years. It's bad news. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, so like all that to say, cool. I think if that if uh, if having like a very sort of materialist um, interpretation of like those themes in the Bible does it for people, I think that's great and that's awesome. Uh, but there's something about me that like I don't know. I really love like the the blockbuster <laughs> metaphysical <laughs> claims just because they're so outrageous, right? Like the very idea of like. Um, you know, sort of imagining that Judgment Day scenario, imagining there is a dragon that's going to eat your butt and all that kind of stuff. Um, I really love those theologians that are able to kind of hold them at the same time. Like, I think Metz is trying to do that. Another person I think of a lot is uh, Ignacio Eucuria, the um, uh, Jesuit who was killed in El Salvador with uh, a number of other people. Um, He had this way of understanding the crucifixion and resurrection. I think we've talked about it even on the show, but... yeah. I'll say it again because <laughs> it's good. He has this way of understanding those things as, you know, not the kind of like settling of metaphysical debts and like divine bank accounts of like, I don't know how much wrath you deserve and all that kind of stuff. But instead, uh, the crucifixion is really Christ's identification in solidarity with all who are poor and suffering and enemies of the state. And then uh, the resurrection is also this sort of there's a metaphysical component to it for sure. And I I'm sure that Aikiria believes that, yes, in the future, we will all be resurrected bodily and so on. But it's also for him. It's not like a passive thing that you sit around and wait for. There is a, a participatory moment in it. So like for him, the resurrection is happening all the time in the same way that the crucifixion is also happening all the time. So the crucifixion is not a one and done event. It happened on the cross in whatever first century Rome. And that's the crucifixion. But the crucifixion also happens, you know, when uh, a person is is killed or when a global South nation is held hostage by the IMF or whatever. Like these are what Aikiria called the, the crucified peoples of the world. And he also had that sort of willingness to talk about the, the resurrections that happen all the time. Right. Those moments of kind of revolution that peer through. And I, that's that's where it is for me. I love that uh, that big coming together of the the biggest metaphysical claim you can think of and also the most radical materialist one. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, I guess I'm not uh I'm not saying uh the big the big metaphysical claim is like something I'm not into or whatever. It's just like um I I guess I've seen <laughs> I guess it's this is like this must be like one of those like recovering from Christian trauma the kinds of things or something, but I I feel like I I've, I've seen people do so much like dumb stuff with that particular arrangement that I'm <laughs> yeah, always yeah. so skeptical of it. Yeah. So like so unless it's really material, I have to be kind of like holding it at an arm's length or something. But sure. yeah, I mean those formulations make a lot of sense, right? Where um yeah, Jesus like the crucifixion is something that happens again and the resurrection is something that happens again as well. Um, those, those framed in that way, uh, I'm into it for sure. <laughs> Good. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Uh, Matt is not going to get dragged before his local bishop. And, uh, I mean, maybe not for this, maybe for the dragon, else. the dragon can come eat my butt at the end of time. It's fine. <laughs> but like, <laughs> and we have to, but we have to do socialism now though, is the thing. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. And the dragon is capitalism at the same time. Yeah, it's all there. It's all, it's all, uh, metaphysical material. Um, all right. 
so we've we did that part. We did the metaphysical piece. We've done our theological due diligence here. Um, why don't we talk a little bit about the liabilities of hope? We've been really talking it up. Um, some of the liabilities are obvious. We mentioned them: cynicism, disappointment, naivete, or whatever. But uh, I don't know. Like I, I'm sure there's a handful of people listening to this podcast, and they're like, uh, they finally did it. They finally did the hope one, and now I'm pissed about it. <laughs> I I specifically know at least two people who feel that way. I'm sure if they've gotten this far into the podcast, so let's acknowledge it. Why Why is hope bad, Matt? Why don't we? Why should we be skeptical of hope? Uh, you should be skeptical of hope because um, maybe it will. Uh, I mean, I don't know. It it is. It, it could be uh, misleading in the sense that like you could actually change a situation, right? Like uh, you, you could you could be too naive in your hope that you would think that you could like, uh, you know, topple capitalism with your cool mutual aid street team or something. (laughs) Right. Like it's too naive maybe. Yeah, for sure. That is one I've heard. Uh, another one kind of in the same orbit of that, that I've heard is like, uh, hope is dangerous because it also blinds you to the bad effects of your success. So like, Maybe you hope that you are going to win whatever it might be, some political victory, and you do win it and you get it. But like in the process, you sacrifice whatever, like um, you sacrifice like solidarity along racial lines for solidarity along class lines or something. Right. So like the hope can actually drive you to sort of overlook like a lot of things. uh, And then when you finally do kind of achieve what you were after, you then, you know, you never get back to like addressing those things because the hope has been realized and that's kind of the end of the the story. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, there is like a, there is an idealism to hope that I think you can, I mean, I don't know. I I think it's possible to square with uh, a materialist understanding of the world or even just like Marxism in general, but you know, it's something to always be kind of like watching out for, right. When you, uh, uh, you, you don't want to like over approximate your own sort of like your your own indignation and courage or something and uh, and and think that like things are possible when they're not or or to mistake, um, you know, the simple like material situation for like your own indignation and courage mm-hmm. either. There's a lot going on there, right? Like you uh, you you can uh, you can mistake you. you Hope hope does offer a possibilities for mistaking um, causes and effects that could be kind of complicated. Right. Uh, yeah, exactly. Or like I remember I had a conversation with somebody once and we were talking about politics and um, I was like, you know, they, I think they asked me the question, like, where, where do you find hope? And uh, I said, yeah, I find hope in a place like Cuba or Bolivia, you know, these places where they're really experimenting with alternative ways of putting the world together. And I remember this person saying, well, you know, isn't that a bad thing, though? Because like in Cuba, also like people sometimes say that the problem of racial discrimination is gone when it really it isn't. Or like in Bolivia, they'll say, you know, we have Evo Morales, the first indigenous president. And nevertheless, like there are indigenous peoples who are in conflict with the state or with, uh, you know, mining projects happening in Bolivia and so on. And I mean, on the one hand, it's like, I think point taken, like, I think Mm -hmm. that some left wing people hear those critiques as like, one dimensional and just sort of undermining anything. But I think it's actually important to be alive to them and like, get it. Like if I lived in Bolivia, and I was whatever, an indigenous person, and my land was being destroyed, I would probably not be too excited about that either, right? (laughs) Like, that's okay, to admit. And I think that it's true that like, identifying your hope, 
in a general way with a particular project can sort of uh, blind you to the deficiencies of it. But at the same time, I think it's important to say, well, you can have a mature kind of hope that understands that there are like contradictions involved in things that you hope for. Well, yeah, that's true. I mean, the something maybe to consider in in thinking about hope is because hope has to do with like our motivations and also um our understanding of like where we are in the particular story there's a there's a hermeneutic project when we're doing those types of things right like hope is is a type of hermeneutic when you come to read cuba or you come Mm -hmm. to read bolivia because like of course of course there are bad things in those places because i don't know the world is a dumb place and like bad things exist kind of everywhere even if you do have like a cool political project or something and like hope is learning to read around those things or to like you know make space for them or i mean understanding them in a mature way too like you can kind of just come to grapple with things and understand that it's not perfect but still it can provide you with a sort of like um a, a type of hope for the world or a hope for a type of politics that you know you wouldn't see anywhere else so i don't know i mean yeah because it is because there is a hermeneutic project involved like you know, it can it can break bad, and that's bad. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, it's easy for me to say, but like, um, but but like, of, of course, I don't know. To me, to me, when someone says, "Well, oh, you you're you think socialism is good because you are taking the very good things from this place and you're just believing them," it's like, well, yeah. I mean, of course, that's like <laughs> what that's like what everyone does with everything, right? Like. Um, the sort of the because we understand the world through language, you know, you have to uh, you have to do a bit of that. And uh, hope is if hope can definitely help us read a project, but it can also make us blind to things, too, if we're not mature and like good understanders of things, too. Right. I guess that's maybe the the downfall that uh, that that could be involved. Yeah. I think, too, uh, I mean, there's a lot of good critiques of hope. We mentioned a bunch of them, whatever, disappointment, cynicism, what we're just talking about, that it can sort of uh, make you not see, not be alive to things that you should be alive to and so on. Um, I think there is some other uh, criticisms of hope or maybe like hesitations around hope that I can appreciate, like coming from maybe out of left field a little bit, like uh, there's a Buddhist critique of hope that um, my partner Emily was telling me about recently where uh, they, some Buddhist authors don't like hope because it is tied up with attachments and the idea is you should be constantly detaching yourselves. And when I first heard it, I was like, I don't know, like, you know, is it so bad to have an attachment to like a good hope and so on? But like, I get it and it's fine. Like, I'm not a Buddhist. So like, (laughs) I guess I'm sort (laughs) of on the fence about it, but I can understand the concern, which is you, you do get too attached to some vision and if that vision doesn't come true, it will cause you suffering. And in some cases, if it does come true, it will cause you suffering, right? So, like, I think there's, like, some interesting spiritual critiques of hope as well. And, um, again, those kind of political ones that shine through. Uh, but nevertheless, I have to say, I think I came around to it eventually. And I think I'm also just generally a healthier person once I finally got around to being like, I'm going to hope for certain things <laughs> on purpose. Yeah, for sure. Well, there's a lot of stuff to hope towards yeah (laughs) there are oh uh one other thing i think that is interesting too about hope um this was just one more critical thing i had seen uh i was thinking about like watching these two court cases recently the kyle rittenhouse case and the um oh yeah 
uh, sorry, it's escaping me. The other case, um, Armand Aubrey. Yeah. Um, the, both the verdicts, right. And like, there was a ton of rhetoric going around after the, uh, the Arbery case that was like, oh, my hope is restored in the legal system after it was dashed by the Rittenhouse case. And I think that is also such a dangerous thing, right? That mm-hmm. if your if your hope is so kind of wishy-washy that like it just depends on which one happened most recently, like that's no good because both of these things are part of the legal system and they're both messed up, right? Like it's a completely bizarre situation. I mean, the the legal system itself is, is bizarre, but to sort of hang your hope on whether or not a particular verdict uh, restores your faith in that system, even though the system will deliver another Rittenhouse verdict tomorrow. You know, like, uh, it's important to sort of have a hope that's big enough to reject those, like, smaller kinds of hope, I guess. Or maybe that's the, that's one weird way of reading Paul's, like, hope against hope thing in the Bible, that you should have some kind of hope that is strong enough that you can hope against more, like, um, I don't know, weaker forms of hope, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. <laughs> um, I could see somebody out there hearing you say that and then hearing me say the thing like, well, bad stuff just happens. So like, you should you should just be like mature about it and thinking <laughs> that's the same thing. But it's not. It's different. It's different, right? Like you can you can understand like uh, looking at like a, an imperfect country uh, or an imperfect political project that is like interesting and uplifting and like provides a type of hope um and and understand in a mature way where not everything has to be perfect but then looking at this other thing where uh i don't know your hope is restored and you can't you just like can't you just bracket some of the bad stuff and it's like no (laughs) when it comes Mm -hmm. to like when it comes to policing or the u.s legal system i think there's like there is uh there's no hope of redemption or maybe the only hope for redemption is like the the eschaton right the end of all things Mm -hmm. or something (laughs) right yeah yeah, um, uh, there's maybe two different things going on there. Yeah, well, there you have it. It is Advent. We're in the middle of it. It's Hope Week. Next week is Peace Week. So you can, I don't know, start looking up all your favorite peace activists to celebrate. Uh, You can look up. um, I've been reading a bunch of stuff on uh, Catholic social teaching on peace and uh, like um, political and social development. And I got to say, it's even better than I had a thought so i don't know maybe we'll get around to that next week but uh, maybe um i am for sure really itching actually to talk about benjamin lay and his pacifism yeah. <laughs> i uh i got good. the uh the benjamin lay graphic novel and uh, oh nice it's, it's so good i love it i'm excited for that one benjamin lay if you guys haven't heard is a, a wild quaker um person in the 1700s we did an episode of marcus redeker a long time ago about him and uh yeah that we'll bring that for sure we got to bring that benjamin lay heat anytime we talk about peace yeah absolutely gotta stab something (laughs) uh a fake bible full of fake blood that's for sure (laughs) that's actually the opening page sorry i'm not gonna talk about anymore but it's great (laughs) all right i'm gonna have to get a copy um okay we'll see you next week during peace week uh what else do we have to say our music is by amari armstrong and our outro is by the illogical spoon have a good advent hope weekend i don't want to get up for church in the morning church in the morning souls alive Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday there'll be no damn Between us and our Lord 
Jackson, keep your hoods up, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early, at least I would have.